RNZ National, Wallace Chapman here. Uh, just that um, update, uh, the Gore, there's a local state of emergency in Gore, and the council has posted that they need reinforcements to help filling sandbags. As I said at uh, quarter to four, the team can't keep up with the large number of requests they're getting. So... Um, if you can help uh, for Gore and Matauda, please head to the yard on Miro Street, M-I-R-O, uh, and the yard's open for those to come and pick up sandbags from their yard there. And just a traffic update for Wellington State Highway 58 Haywards is now clear. That's uh, an update uh, at 10 to 4. Uh, however, the congestion remains. Current eastbound queues are past Mulhern Road. First up, the economy has posted stronger than expected growth in the second quarter as service industries and manufacturing lifted activity. Stats NZ said gross domestic product rose 0.9% in the three months into June. So several industries uh, contributed to the growth, including public administration, safety, defence, rental hiring, real estate services. Also, our guest says... Economic claims made by our political parties are so vital, so important, that they should be analysed by an independent entity. We'll talk about that with us, Professor Ananish Chowdhury, uh, an experimental economics professor at uh, the University of Auckland Business School. Professor Chowdhury, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Wallace. Pleasure. So first of this GDP, 0.9% uh, uh, growth there. What does this tell you uh, about New Zealand's economy as it stands right now? I don't think it's that great news, right? So you, you basically the finance minister is saying, oh, we expect the GDP to shrink, but it didn't shrink. It grew by 0.9%. That's, that's very small, right? And uh, the IMF forecast that your GDP growth will be one of the lowest in the world in 2024. And one other issue here is that um, we have had approximately somewhere around 100, 200,000 inward migration. Uh, and so if your, let's say, population is growing at 2% and your GDP is growing at 1%, then in per capita terms, GDP is actually falling, right? So in general, it's hard to portray this as very good news. Okay, so not so great there, Ananesh. Did we enter recession? No, I mean, by definition, recession would be if your GDP fell. So by that definition, we have not entered recession because GDP has actually increased very by a small amount, but it's not a fall. So recession is typically if GDP falls for at least two quarters, two to three quarters in a row. Okay. So that's not true in this case. All right. And before we go to our panel, so the, this set of figures, this is looking in the rear vision mirror, right? This is what's been, not what's to come. Correct. 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 And just, again, look, I mean, this quarter-to-quarter quarter view is, is somewhat myopic, right? So what happened this quarter, it's a very short uh, kind of snapshot in time. So you need to really take a slightly bigger picture and ask ourselves, you know, how are we doing, say, let's say, respect to the OECD, respect to other countries of similar size and things like that. And right now, I don't think we are doing very well. And um, one of the things that he pointed out initially at the very, you know, just before he said part of this being grown is driven by growth in public administration. 
that's probably not ideal, right? Because we don't want government spending to prop up our GDP. We want much of it to come from the productive sectors of the economy. Okay, well, let's go to our panel. Joe McCarroll. Well, Professor Chowdhury, you sort of touched on it there. It's, um, I mean, you're you're talking about the kind of technical change in the numbers and, you know, this is a percent here and this is a, you know, a percent here. But, but I guess just thinking about it as a non-economist, I'd say that the 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 benefits and the downfall are, they're just not evenly felt um so you know the, the the impact these economic impacts are unevenly distributed so the bad impacts more on already vulnerable communities and the good impacts more on people who tend to be doing pretty well so is this really a lens do we need another lens to look at this like a lens of sort of inequality uh, that's a very good point, actually. So, for instance, we know that uh, inflation impacts people very differently, right? Um, it depends on what you consume, right? I mean, the in- inflation measures kind of the price of a standard basket, but you may or may not consume that. Uh, so, yes, you could you could look at that, but in in some senses, so look, I mean, you could ap- apply different lenses, but at the same time. Key measure has to be a rapidly increasing per capita GDP, right? because unless that GDP is accruing to at the very top, by and large, that should benefit people. So you could you could certainly I mean, we certainly look at uh, what's called the GDP coefficient, how income is distributed. But for all of those measures, we really need the economy to be growing at a slightly higher clip. Okay, all right. Phil, you'll have uh, views on this too. Yeah, I think the professor makes some excellent points there. I think the, the challenge, of course, you've seen the politicians making a lot of this today, uh, and that's entirely appropriate given it's that we're in the middle of an election period. But the professor's correct in the sense that we you can't eat the economy. You know, you, you, people will still be feeling it's tough, and this is the point that, that Joe's making too, that, that at the end of the day, an economy is there for the for the benefit of the citizens and communities that that are in the economy, and even though you're seeing sluggish growth, and that's a good thing. I mean, I, it's better than better than uh, degrowth, of course, but uh, you're not seeing the, the the people in the economy, the people in the communities aren't really seeing that play out, and and that's really the challenge. I think the politicians have to talk to us about in the election campaign, and it and it and Professor Chowdhury, I think you're right in saying that you know really the challenge is about growth. And, right. and how right. do you make that growth? Uh, you know, obviously, how do you make that growth inclusive? Uh, right. And what distresses me a little bit about what the politicians have been talking about over the last few weeks to, to turn to the election a bit is we haven't had enough of a dialogue, I think, with the public and with the voters about how to achieve growth. We've had a lot of, you know, we'll spend this or we'll cut that. I, you know, there's, there's been too little conversation, I think, from anybody much about how do we actually get the economy growing back strongly because then a whole bunch of things are solved, including affordability of welfare and a whole bunch of other things. So well, that centrality of that, I think, is a big, big missed here. But On the back of that, can I just jump in uh, with the, the, the other central question I wanted to bring to you and, and the panellists? You wrote a very interesting piece in the Post. You've already had feedback on it, actually, that faulty economic policies can and do cost lives. So why don't we require our political parties to have them analysed by an independent entity. And there's been some cause for that uh, from our listeners, Ananish. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it makes, makes sense, right? I, I, I Either you have an independent authority or at the very least parties could simply say, look, here are the people who provided input and you know, this is the data. 
but I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be able to get a better sense of the numbers other than politicians saying, you know, oh, you know, trust us on this. I think that's that's a bit of a shame. The, uh, Joe, the establishment of an independent parliamentary costing body? Well, I think, you know, you expect it from teenagers at school that they show they're working. I think we should hold up <laughs> elected politicians to at least the highest standard. I, I find that I find I'm quite infuriated by that idea that we might not understand because I would say everyone in New Zealand, look, I would consider myself not particular. I don't I've never studied economics it's not something I consider I have much expertise in but I run my own house I spend my own money I, I I understand how that works and I think everyone does I just I challenge the idea that we that no one would be interested or no one would understand it Phil I'm a little cautious about this. Uh, the, at the end of the day, we elect politicians not just, as we'll talk about this a bit later on, we elect politicians not just on the objectivity of their numbers, but also on whether we think they'll do anything that we, we think is important elsewhere. So I, I, I do the, the pre-election fiscal update stuff that gets published by the Treasury, even that uh, clearly can get a bit gamed by the government in power, and I'm, that's a blue or, or a red team issue. Uh, and then what you've seen with the politicians' costings that have come out, not just the Nats, uh, famous tax costings, but also uh, some of the labour stuff around the, the cost of dental care and so on. Actually, what you do see is a vigorous debate around that. You do see economists saying it doesn't do work or it does work. Yeah, you do. I mean, you've seen day after day of that with a team of economists having a go at the Nats uh, tax plan, and you've seen uh, really respected tax, uh, really respected tax uh, authorities like Robin Oliver at XIRD saying the, the the foreign buyer thing will work and so on. So that's I think that's important that we have a debate around this. Now there may be some room for some more formality around that. But I, you know, I do believe that we need to right. have a, a broader conversation that's not just about the economics. Final thoughts, Anish? Yes, no, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you that there should be debate. The politicians should be able to put forward their plans. Some of this is aspirational. You know, the nuts and bolts are less important than some of us might think. But the fact is, I looked at National's Back Pocket Boost 32-page document, and it's actually very difficult to understand uh, what are they assuming and what, you know, what the assumptions are, what is the experience of other places like Vancouver or Toronto. And um, it doesn't seem that difficult for me to say, look, here, here is what we're assuming. Because then we can argue over those assumptions, whereas currently what's happening is the economists are really kind of basing their views on what they think, what they interpret those yeah. numbers to. Well, very good, Professor Chaldry. Kia ora. I appreciate your time today on the panel. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. Uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, what do you think? Do you think well, we need some sort of um, independent costing body so uh, the, the, the key parties can send their costings uh, externally? Phil O'Reilly and Joe McCarroll joining me on the programme now this. This came out this morning. Um, this is from RNZ's Guy Nespina. The Labour government has warned, was warned earlier this year that removing GST from fruit and veggies may not make them more affordable in documents obtained under the OIA. But Ministry of Health documents did say that there is a growing international evidence to support attacks on sugary drinks. Over 45 countries have introduced a sugar tax in the last five years. Nationals Dr Shane Retti was open to exploring this idea, said Guy So we've discussed this before, but this has put 
the sugar tax back on the agenda with us is Professor Boyd Squinburn, Chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa, once co-chaired the Lancet Commission on Obesity. Professor Swinburne, welcome. Sure, thanks, Alice. So the Ministry of Health is now apparently reviewing the evidence uh, for a sugar tax after it was rejected, uh, what, 2017. What does a sugar tax actually do? Well, about half the countries have sugar tax. I think the best one is the soft drink industry levy uh, in the UK. And if we were to have one, I think that's the one we should follow. It's a tiered um, levy and that has had almost immediate effect, actually even before the, the levy was introduced, of reducing sugar within the soft drinks. So um, it's an immediate signal to the industry to pull the sugar out of the soft drinks. It's a signal, it's a price signal to the consumers to reduce consumption. We know that happens uh, on a very predictable basis. And of course, all of the health benefits that flow uh, from that, especially actually uh, dental caries. Um, so there's been a very uh, clear study from Mexico, which introduced a sugar, sugar tax some years ago, that it had a very rapid impact on reducing dental caries uh, in kids. And so I think if we're looking at health benefits, we really do need to implement serious interventions like this, uh, not just rely on education. Would it not be a risk, though, Professor Swinburne, that um, it would be a regressive tax? It would take more from lower income? Yeah, that's that's a good point, Joe. And um, with we, the same is true with alcohol and and. Um, tobacco tax as well, that when they do get cranked up, it does have um, perhaps a regressive effect on those who don't respond with a reduction in consumption. But the thing is that the people who respond the most to increases in prices are the people with the lowest income, and that includes kids as well, actually. And um, so the impact on health is very pro-equity, even though the tax itself might seem regressive, but it is a very proactive health um, uh, strategy. Phil? Well, I'm reminded of that famous statement that for every complex problem, there's a bright, shiny, simple solution that's wrong. And I'm not necessarily suggesting this is wrong, but I'm suggesting that this is a very complex issue. And I've, you know, the the advocates for taxes have been around for quite a while, including uh, Professor Swinburne. And you know, I've I've looked at some of the evidence around the world uh, over the same period, and it's a little more complex. When I look at that evidence, now I'm not necessarily suggesting there's no price mechanism here that will work, but I do think there's a lot to be said for education, there's a lot to be said for working with the industry, there's a lot to be said for self-regulation, and there's a lot to be said for uh, communities working together on this. And I think to to simply say the answer is a tax, I think, is is rather wrong-headed. And that's why, of course, you've seen... Aisha Verrill, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, it's more complex, complex and you need to think about the impact on community. So I'm, I'm much more cautious about this kind of thing. And I think there's an awful lot more we can do right. working together to, to bring about change. Which is what Minister Verrill did say, uh, Boyd. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and uh, listen, I totally agree with um, Phil in that this is not a magic bullet. No question about that. Anybody who says that um, that complex problem like obesity can be solved with one uh, one strategy, one policy um, is not talking sense, although dental caries seems to be much more sensitive than than obesity but um, the Health Coalition Aotearoa is calling for multiple 
policies like uh, doubling the Kaurakaako free lunch program, healthy school food policies, restrictions on marketing, those kinds of things. Those are the interventions which are, are serious and have the most impact. Um, Phil, working with, with industry, um, we've been doing that with the front of pack labelling with the Health Star rating system right. um, for the last 10 years and that has uh, not really created much benefit. It hasn't even been put on all products. Um, the industry has a self-regulatory code for marketing to children. That has had no impact as far as we've been able to measure it. Um, education is important, but the environment needs there needs to be there so that people can make those healthy choices. They're not sort of constrained and pushed into the unhealthy choices um, that's all around us today. Boy, do you happen to know if children are having more sugar now than 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Because I'm in my 40s and we were mainlining the stuff and, (laughs) you um, you know, and we were skinny kids. So... I, I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying sugar doesn't have downstream health effects. It clearly does. But I would say when I was yeah. growing up, it was colouring and foods, and then you know, people a bit younger than me, it was e numbers. So it, there's always a something that's the the root of all evil. And <laughs> as you say, it's a much more complex multifactorial Boy. problem. Yeah, yeah. So um, good question, Joe. And unfortunately, we have no idea what children eat. The last time we did a health uh, nutrition survey on children was 2002. Um, so this is one of the biggest health issues facing children. We don't know what they eat. Uh, and and uh, there's a lot of pressure to have a national nutrition survey to bring us up to date. The food industry is calling for it. The health professionals are calling for it and so on. And, and the, and the uh, government departments as well. We all need this. That sounds quite data. striking. That sounds key to have uh, an updated 21st century information void. <laughs> Absolutely, it's key. Um, you know, there's so many things that hang off that. Mm. Um, we don't know what, what it is. And it's not just the sugary drinks, of course. Um, this whole idea of ultra-processed foods, of which sugar is only one component. There's fat and, and salt and all the additives and mm. so on. And we, my best guess is that New Zealand kids, probably about half of their diet is from this ultra-processed food. And we know that that is the category of food that leads to dental caries, obesity, mental health problems, and then for adults, um, heart disease, uh, cancer, that sort of thing. So it's the, this category of ultra-processed foods is really the one we should be focusing on. Very interesting, Professor Swinburne. Kia ora for your time there. Boyd Swinburne, their chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa, once co-chaired the Lancet Commission on Obesity, 27 past four, whether or not we should have a sugar tax or not, you can text me on that, 2101. Someone said, Wendy says, Canada has an independent costing body and it produces a wealth of good information. Uh, So, yeah, interesting. 27 past four, the panel, I wanted to get to this, so... What's your favourite book? That was a question in the leaders' debate. The answers were somewhat wanting, many said. Chris Hipkins said, To be honest, I don't get to read much fiction or non-fiction these days. Chris Luxon said, uh, The Inner Mind of Tennis is what I'm sort of reading at the moment, which is apparently a guide to achieving the state of relaxed concentration. Led many to ask, How hard can it be to name a favourite book? Well, we've had many because the panel listeners love their books. And with us is Rachel in Auckland. Kia ora, Rachel. 
Clara Wallace, nice to speak to you. And I have to say I was very disappointed listening to those politicians the other night not being able to list their favourite book. I mean, really, goodness me. <laughs> All right, so away from the true Chris's, what's one that you can give us? Well, A Fine Balance by Rohanta Mystery is absolutely amazing. Now, he's a Parsi, and he's called Shakespearean. He writes like a Shakespearean. He's obviously Indian, and he is just amazing. And when you get into the book, you cannot let it go. And it's multi-generational. It's all about the petition that happens, and it's, it's just incredible. And he's written many other good books, but it's one that you keep going back to. Do you know, Rachel, that when yeah. we've done this before, instead of a, a couple of years ago, and more people talked about a fine balance than possibly any other book? It was, people love it. Oh, it is. It's truly, and I have many, many friends that I recommend it to, and they always come back and say, I can't believe I've never read this book before. Nice it one. It should be a standard one. Yes. Wow, okay. Um, Professor Swinburne as well, because I'm a nurse at Middlemore Hospital. I'm very, very pleased to hear what he has to say. So you see it on the ground, eh, as a nurse at Middlemore? Oh, yes. Every single day, Wallace. Every single day. Good on you, Rachel. Thanks for listening. A lot of great work for you. Thank you. There it goes. Uh, A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. Let's go around the panel. Uh, Book loving Phil. Jump on in. Oh, look, I've got two. I couldn't, I couldn't no, get past two. Two, 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 Don, two. Don Quixote, uh, Miguel Cervantes, oh. incredibly influential book for me. I Never read it as a student. Oh, amazing. It started a whole thing called the Cervantine tradition about the way in which a book is written. And it's, it's, it's as if someone is standing beside Don Quixote saying, Dear reader, I can tell you that uh, Don Quixote did this and he, he did that and so on. It's just a wonderful comedy and a satire. It's fantastic. Wonderful. And the other one, of course, I can't put down is Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll. Similarly, oh. a satirical a satirical book, and I, I keep on going back and reading. It's just fantastic. Both, both really influential books. The best book I've read recently for listeners, because I know some uh, listen into that kind of thing to, for any recommendations I've got, a book by Rory Carroll called Killing Thatcher. It's about the Brighton bombings of 19, the mid-80s, 1983, and how the IRA did that and what happened afterwards and how, the, how they were found and investigated and so on, and the implications of that to the peace process. It's a fantastic book, very readable. I just commend the best Amazing. book I've read in the last few months, Killing Thatcher. Wonderful. Oh, my goodness gracious. You're always good for a, a book uh, recommendation, Phil, as you are, Joe, What's yours? Well, I found this hard. Like Phil said, it's these books you've read over your life at different times in your life when they've just resonated with you. I got it down to to maybe five, but possibly seven. But I would say number one for me, and this is kind of a basic choice, but it would be Donna Tartt's Secret History, which I just loved so much. I read it when I was um, probably in my 20s, and it was just such an amazing book. I, I loved it. I've read it, reread it many, many times. Um, in the lockdowns, I, I reread all my Noel Strathfield books, which are children's books, but I loved the book Ballet Shoes, my copy of it from when I was a, a kid. I've worn the pages out with reading. Often the pages, the, the words are worn, out, worn away. Um, and then there's so many more. I loved Marion Key's Rachel's Holiday. I just think that's oh. an amazing, iconic book that's really underrated. Um, to the Islam by Janet Frame. Recently, I think I've read Ruby Tui's book, which I thought was incredible. Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Manson. I just thought was incredible. Fantastic. You know, I, it's. But so many times, there's a book you read it at a time in your life, and it just it speaks to you. Oh my goodness me! There are two here that I'm going to um, uh, suggest. Uh, the Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes. Yep, great the history book. of Australia is uh, you cannot put it down. But I guess one, if there's the the best book I've ever read, 
I'll probably say because I was... I'll say this because I was riveted by page 10, and I couldn't put it down. I hated the subject. I never knew anything about Andre Agassi. Didn't care a bit, but I couldn't put the book down. And it's written by a um, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, novel author, J.R. Moringer, and the book is called Open by Andre Agassi. It is unbeatable. <laughs> That's my uh, recommendation.